Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have a very special guest with us, Carol Felsenthal. Did I say your name right? And I totally forgot to ask you. It's Felsenthal. Felsenthal. Yes. Okay. Thanks for being here. Uh, You're very welcome. Uh, Mrs. Felsenthal, I'm assuming. (laughs) I should have asked you that too. Okay. Uh, Is the author of this book. It's called The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, the biography of Phyllis Schlafly. And it was published by Doubleday in 1981. Now, I would like to share with your permission, Carol, a brief anecdote about how I came across this book. I was in Scottsdale recently, and I was in a used bookstore, and it it was apparent that there had been a recent purchase of some Phyllis Schlafly materials, probably from an estate or something, someone that had recently died and the kids didn't know what to do with it. That's my guess. And I came across this book and I, I know who Phyllis Schlafly is. I, I grew up. Um, I wouldn't say I grew up reading the Phyllis Schlafly report. That would be far too, uh, that wouldn't be inaccurate, but I did as a kid read probably less than a half dozen of them, but I found it to be boring. I found it to be, I knew that it was maybe important or something, but I I just couldn't get excited about it, you know, and um, sometimes they were laying around and I don't know where we got them. My sense is that my grandmother dropped them off to my dad or something like that and my mom, but uh, I definitely knew about her as a child growing up in the eighties and um. I knew she was a big wig and that's all I really knew. Well, so I, uh, I went to get a PhD in politics and this is kind of what I do now. And, uh, I teach government and, uh, I came across this book and of course I, I recognized her and I read the, the first introductory part where you talk Carol about um, the reaction to the book and, and, and what you experienced a little bit about it. You, you shared an anecdote that she had been, uh, dismissive of something you wrote previously. Um, she didn't, uh, I, I may, it might've been critical of her or something like very, that. Very critical, very critical. Okay. And, uh, okay. So I read that part before I saw in the front part that it had been signed. I'm trying to get it to the video here. Oh gosh. You can't really make it out. And of course, if you're on audio only on Apple podcasts, you're not going to be able to see this, but go to the YouTube on the front part there, there is a signature from Phyllis Schlafly. And at first I didn't see this, any significance in that other than it's cool to see the signature. But then I realized, wait, Phyllis Schlafly didn't write this book. Usually it's the author that signs it. Phyllis Schlafly is the subject of this book. 
And so her signature on this meant in some way that she endorsed what what it said. And and I just read the part where there was this uh, tension in the relationship between the author and the subject, at least initially. So then I thought, uh, okay, so I left. My wife and I had this conversation about budgeting <laughs> and uh, she's like, you don't get, don't get any more books. Just don't, you know, just don't get any more books. I, we were leaving Scottsdale the next day. I said, I have to go back and get that book. I, and, and so she agreed and I, I told her, I said, this is, this is too far out. I have to chase this down. So I, uh, we, uh, we went back and got the book and I picked up a few of the other books that she had written, uh, with Chester Ward. And I, and one of them was a choice, not an echo in prime condition. And I've heard of those books, but I'd never seen them. And, and so, and I also picked up a, a biography of Al Smith by his granddaughter. So I got kind of both sides, um, going there, but then I, then I thought, I wonder where the author is and if I can chase her down and somehow I came across you and I was able to find you. So that all that led to this. And here we are. <laughs> here we are. Now, am I correct that you were writing for Chicago magazine back then? I, yes, I was trying to figure out how to become a writer I graduated with a degree um, in English and a certificate to teach uh, high school English. And um, I really didn't have any role models. I went to Chicago Public Schools. I went on scholarship to the University of Illinois. And um, but I had a lot of what uh, in Yiddish is called chutzpah. And I ended up <laughs> Uh, going unannounced to the book editor of the uh, late, one of the late Chicago, late and great Chicago Daily News. I got an assignment, then I tapped it up a notch, and I got an assignment from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, the Daily News died in 1977, so that's out of the picture. The Chicago Tribune is still around in a terribly reduced version of itself. It was bought by a hedge fund uh and is which has really pretty much ruined it but anyway yeah. i got an assignment to review a schlafly book called the power of the positive woman mm -hmm. and i thought that book was just a hilarious i thought it was so terrible and i thought her views on women were terrible and her views on what was then called the women's liberation movement were awful so I wrote this review for the Tribune, and I, if subsequent to that, I reviewed many books. I, I spent a good part of my career uh, doing that as kind of an extra thing. And I, one thing that I learned is the easiest review to write is a review of a nonfiction book that you hate. And if you want to take cheap shots, that review is full of them. So the okay. review is published. I'm really pleased with myself. All my friends think I'm a great woman for writing this thing and taking her apart. Okay. Um, and it wasn't hard to do that. So then um, I started getting mail. Um, uh, th these were the days in the late 70s. Um, 
before email and everything was snail mail. And in my mailbox were these letters with stickers, uh, US out of the UN. And that was a big issue back there. And, you know, back then, and, and in a way, I guess you could say a, a, a lighter version of it exists today. But there were also some um, uh, anti-Semitic like scrawls on it. Like, really? Wow. Dirty Jew exclamation point. Because my my name, Felsenthal, my maiden name, uh, I guess made I guess that's not a, a correct way to put it anymore, was Greenberg. But I took my husband's name when we married in um in uh, uh 1970, and I tried to take back my name and hyphenate, but it was too complicated. But anyway, obviously Felsenthal sounds very Jewish. So I was getting <laughs> all all these crazy messages. And then I'm searching my memory because I, I admit that I didn't go back and look at the book. In fact, I'm looking for it on my shelf here and I don't see it. So somebody must have gone away with it. Oh, but no. <laughs> anyway, um, um, I um, decided that I wanted to write a profile, Phyllis Schlafly. She had announced that she was going to run in the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate against a politician named um, Chuck Percy, Charles Percy. Charles Percy was what today would be called a rhino or a Rockefeller Republican. Mm -hmm. um, and so I managed um, to get an assignment from Chicago Magazine. It was my first piece for them. Wow. And then out of just some really good luck, um, somebody, the cover story was uh, was critical of a Chicago Magazine uh, advertising. So they cut the cover story and I guess they were desperate. So they put my profile on the cover. But in the meantime, uh, Phyllis was here campaigning and I spent time with her. I got to know her a little bit and I've written several biographies. And I have to say that among the subjects um, I've covered, she was far and away the most gracious, and she wow. also, so I came, like, I couldn't admit it to anybody, I, but I grew <laughs> kind of to be, she was very funny with me, and she had all kinds of advice for me, and she was asking me, like, you're married, uh, uh, when are you, when are you and your husband going to have a baby? Um, <laughs> uh, she, um, she she took a kind of a personal interest in me and i i'd written i wrote a biography of Catherine graham who was a real jerk and wow. you know despite, despite her celebration in the mainstream press she's not a she was not a woman of good character hmm. and she was really nasty to me and unfair to me and i'd also written a book about bill clinton and mm -hmm. he was, I would call him also, um, maybe not quite as big a jerk, but he was just disorganized and mm -hmm. led me along, had me sending him all kinds of stuff and then never cooperated with me. So there's Phyllis Schlafly. The piece runs in Chicago Magazine. I want to write books. So I took that piece, uh, sent it to Doubleday, found out who an editor who might be receptive to it was. And before I knew it, I had a contract to write a biography of her. And that's how this thing happened. Wow. And I was out of touch with her for very, very many years. And I also got the Phyllis Schlafly report, which <laughs> usually went right in the garbage can because it was so 
hard to read. And, and <laughs> yeah. you know what? it wasn't the Phyllis Schlafly report was not only about what became the issue that made her famous the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. It was also full of foreign policy. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, nuclear throw weights and all this stuff that was so far beyond my area of expertise and interest. Um, and eventually she gave me some interviews and, and that the interviews, one of which was at her house. And, um, it was like super interesting. I was that the one during Christmas time. Yes. It was the Christmas holidays. She lived in Alton, Illinois, across the Mississippi from St. Louis, which is where she grew up. And she had the six children and they all sat at the table with good table manners. And I'm sure they were totally bored and wished that I'd disappear, that they could leave the table. They didn't leave the table without permission. They sat like good little soldiers. Were you a guest for dinner? No, a guest for lunch. Oh, okay. Yes, for lunch. And Fred was there. And one of the reasons when first she said no to me and she said it's she said it's too early in her career and she just blew me off, but I never stopped. I today it would be considered to be like stalking or harassment. <laughs> so I kept going. And were you were these phone calls or were you mailing letters, letters, Le- and letters? Phones. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, uh, because letters are easy to ignore. Yeah, but mostly phone calls. You know, she okay. she had an office in her house. And that's where she worked. And I had her telephone number. She was very easy. She always answered her, almost always answered her own phone. And if she didn't answer her own phone, it would be her housekeeper who answered, who I got to know when I was there for lunch. And um, so then I met Fred. Fred was her biggest uh, supporter and booster. And he's, you know, there's so many things in Phyllis's life that women would kill for, so to speak, you know, to have a husband like Fred Schlafly, who just was not only in love with her, but he, he really believed in her and he really supported her. And um, Fred and I got to talking in those years, I was an avid runner, like get up at four in the morning and run in Lincoln Park in Chicago, totally unsafe. But I did that every morning, even when I had the flu, I would run. So Fred was kind of physical fitness, I would say, kind of a nut. And we shared something in common, which is my husband's a graduate of Harvard Law School. And uh, Fred was a graduate of Harvard Law School. So Fred said to me, I'll something like I'll talk to Phyllis about giving you a couple of interviews. She doesn't want to do it, but I'll talk to her if you run with me when you come to St. Louis. I wow. didn't do that. It was a really blustery, snowy day. I just stayed for lunch and then I got on a plane and came back to Chicago. Um, but I got to know him a little bit as well. And eventually I kind of like, I I was able to weave my way in. And the only, I was only at her house a second time um, when she put out a bunch of scrapbooks that she kept when she was a girl and they went up until her wedding day. And there was Mm -hmm. some subsequent to that too, but they were so, they were like gold. And Mm -hmm. I never, biographer, it was like, it was like, you know, 
winning the billion dollar lottery. It was amazing. And I, I sat yeah. there for days, just she and Fred would write poetry to each other. She loved Broadway musicals. And she was very, she's a very musical person. She played the piano, <laughs> she sang. Um, so I found her, she was, a, she was in many ways a, a great subject, but she was my first book. And midstream, I like, you know, I grew up in a, my parents didn't go to college. My grandparents are immigrants. Um, I grew up in a house that, that had, the one book that I remember was um, uh, a book by J. Edgar Hoover. We, we didn't, it wasn't a cultured family. I had no, I read books, so I had no idea how to write them. So I was about to call my editor and tell her I can't do this. And I was on a subway platform with my husband in New York. And he persuaded me, he said, you can do this and you have to do this. And if you drop it, you'll never write another book. So I stuck with it, delivered the manuscript and it was published. How long would you say it took to write the whole thing, uh, including the research and all that? Well, it took a long time. It was published in 1981. So books, I don't know whether that's so much true today, but they used to take nine months mm -hmm. to from yeah. delivery of the manuscript. Everything was done with red pencils and so on. And um, so, it, um, and in the, mid, the midstream, I was pregnant with my first of my three children. And I... I, my husband and I, during this pregnancy, my daughter was born just before the book came out. And um, we had a two bedroom apartment and I had everything on index cards. It was like, it was like a nightmare term paper. If you were wow. an academic, you, if oh, I yeah. don't know how old you are, but I'm 74. So I had, I had index cards and I would just write, I would like, if I did an interview, I recorded it. I would transcribe it and put every nugget on an index card with a key to where it came from. And then I threw them in grocery paper shopping bags. So this room in our house had like 15 or 16. And then I had to go through all those index cards and sort them. And I couldn't get anybody to help me because I had the stuff all in my head. Yeah. And so, so um, <laughs> it was, it was a nightmare to, to write when I wrote my first three books that way. But ever since I've, you know, much, much easier to write on a yeah, computer with cut and paste. Um, so I'd say it took me, it took me about three years, I'd say. And I had a, a like a, my husband used to call it the uh, pellet. I'm not sure why, but it was like a, a portable thin mattress. And I would work until four o'clock in the morning and then go to sleep for a few hours on that mattress. And I did it for month after month until I finally got this thing put together. So wow. it was kind of a mess. And wow. And this is on a typewriter. Yes. I, gotta, I, had a, I gotta get this in there for the kids because they don't even remember typewriters. Well, I had an IBM selector. Yeah. And so I it was making you know, the noise. It made the typewriter noise. Yeah, but it was an electric typer. I can't okay. I can't say like some writers claim that they write everything on a manual typewriter. This uh -huh. was sure. This was an electric typer and had one of those tapes. I remember and those. When, yeah. I when I submitted the manuscript, Doubleday required that every page be perfect. So if I had a typo, I'd have to retype the page. Uh -huh. So it, it defined misery, but, yes. but officially That's there right. it was. And, and it didn't, you know, it was... It was all pretty smooth after that. And then I went on and wrote, I'm the next book I wrote was about Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was Teddy Roosevelt's first daughter, 
and there were some connections, but it was a very different kind of book and a lot more fun to write. And Alice Longworth was dead, so it was much easier to write. It's yeah. hard to write about living people. Mm. Kay Graham is an example because Ooh. she wanted she wanted the, my biography of her pulled from the shelf and shredded. That's how great she was on the First Amendment. Gotcha. That makes sense. So with a living subject, the benefit is you can ask them questions, but the there's downsides there because then you have the influence and the they don't necessarily want you to tell the whole story or or a fuller story because well, it wanted, maybe what Phyllis wanted me to tell, and I I did spend time on it, but what made her a celebrity and the most hated woman in the country who had you know, she had a scratch corny at one point when some idiot came up and didn't didn't just throw a pie at her, but smashed her, smashed her. Yeah. And she yeah. wore she wore contact lenses. So uh -huh. but she was quite uh -huh. nearsighted. And I remember when that happened, feeling, oh my Lord, that is mean and that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it was it it really kind of freaked me out. But um uh so you saw that up close and personal, this these this this reaction. Well, I wasn't there for the pie toss, but mm -hmm. there was a, um, I think it was in 1979, ERA got an extension to 1982, but in 1979, mm -hmm. yep. threw a big party in D.C. at one of those big hotels like the Shoreham or one of those. Uh -huh. yep. And um, so I went uh, to cover. Was it in the summer? Um, it was on march like march 25th. Okay. i know because my brother got married the next day and i had to take the train to new york it was like march 22nd to 24th 1979 something like that but in that case she would get up and she'd do these parodies of feminists <laughs> to the uh with her uh lyrics to broadway show tunes and her firstborn john um was a uh I, to my ear, a talented pianist. And he was very close to his mother. Um, and he was playing the piano. She introduced him. He was shy, like he didn't like the limelight. Phyllis loved the limelight, more or less. But anyway, um, so, but right in the middle of one of probably her speech, there was an announcement that the uh, ballroom was being um, uh, cleared because there had been a bomb threat. So, you know, this wasn't... Yes, yeah. It, it wasn't... It was very serious stuff. And um, and it was... These events were things that I really hid. I stayed in the ballroom because I figured it was a hoax. And I was <laughs> young and I didn't have children yet, so I didn't have the same kind of... Yeah. Today I'd be out of there quickly. But so I ended up... Uh, John her son was there and he didn't leave. And I ended up having a really interesting conversation with him that I wouldn't have had otherwise because the, the, the children really didn't want to talk to me much. Although one of her daughters, she had two daughters and her firstborn daughter was named Phyllis. So, and that was new to me because Jews don't name children after living relatives. But so she was named uh, Phyllis after her mother and then she went to well she's princeton. the one that changed her name at princeton though 
<laughs> yeah, she changed her name to Liza. Yeah. And then later she got on, so much flack. <laughs> yeah, well, she, you know, you didn't want to be Phyllis Schlafly's daughter. Yeah. I, I don't think the sons were sensitive to it, but they weren't as much a target. Yeah. The daughters would have been. So she, yeah, she changed that name. And then she came to Northwestern um, hmm. Law School. And my husband and I, if my memory is correct, we took her out for dinner and I, she was a nice person, but the children, they, they wanted their own lives. The only one who really became um, part of her work was John, the, uh, the firstborn child. I, I'd like to uh, give you a compliment here. And I, I hope I, I don't make you feel uncomfortable, but or anything. But I'm I'm gonna just say as I'm reading the book, I I spent some time in this book, quite a bit of time, and over and over again, I noticed it just seemed like you have great instincts for how to write a biography like this. Because I mean, there's no guidebook. Beginners, right? beginners, beginners luck. Totally. <laughs> well, I mean, you have details in here that i i'm there, there's been dozens of times i mark in in the book the details that it's amazing i was like she thought to put that detail in like uh for example you put in one battle um i forget which one just what it is now but um there there was uh i think it was the battle for her election in 1967 for the Republican women's oh, yeah. uh, position. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, the, the tactics that were used, like, for example, you, you mentioned that the hallway was not air conditioned and it was in the summertime yeah. <laughs> and th they had them waiting out there for like 12 hours or something like that. You put these details in there, like uh, in the ERA battle, when they show up with freshly baked bread, and the smell of the bread and and the smell of the apple pies and the lyrics you put the lyrics in there of what they're chanting and you, you it's it's rich with these details uh and it's very organized too like i i noticed you have an entire chapter on the children you have an entire chapter on the husband you have great material on her background growing up and her time in school as a kid, uh, what the Catholic uh, training did for her. Also, you have details of exactly when she was in public school versus private school, what years those were. And I, I think that that's great instinct because this kind of background is rich material for how to understand someone like Phyllis Schlafly. And I, I, have, to, I have to say, it's hard for me to understand her because it's almost like, is she really real? Cause I, cause like you're saying, for example, earlier in this interview, you said that she answers her own phone. Well, if you're, if you read this, that detail alone should knock you on your feet because she's got six. I mean, she, she's writing these books that sell millions of copies in months She's six months pregnant, you know, trying to get Goldwater, you know, in she's uh, she later goes to law school somehow with six kids. I mean, that alone, most people couldn't do that. Um, 
Well, the, her, the, the she deep, was, I'm sorry. You, you oh, I was just going to add one more thing is I could add many things, but like the details you give of how she got her undergraduate degree during world war two, the detail of her working at night, which alone, that alone would be very difficult working all night and then going to class in the morning. But she's over there. She's shooting machine guns. Yeah. And and you, you give the round count. You're like, yeah, she shot like 8,000 rounds or something. And I, I mean, I was in the military and I know that it's, it might be fun to do that, but it actually is not fun. It's, it's work and it, and it would jar your hand. I mean, I just, and this, the, the gunpowder and just all that, I, I can't imagine someone like prim and proper. You give the details of how she sits in her chair. She doesn't touch the back of the chair. She sits straight up. She, she has, she's very polite. She has all these manners. How, how in the world does she have all this energy? Uh, well, you know, she, she once told me, um, that the secret her secret was catnaps and then she mentioned that she shared so she'd sleep for just a few hours every night which is kind of how i am as well but he would uh sit at her desk and fall asleep and she'd sleep for 10 minutes and then this is uh vintage uh phyllis laughley she said and i shared that habit with albert einstein Hmm. she also told me um that I I don't remember what it was, but she was in Chicago and she's a St. Louis person and I'm a Chicagoan born and bred. And we were going somewhere. I have no sense of direction. I mean, none. And I've always worried about, I thought that it's something, you know, that my brain synapses are damaged in some way. So she said, she told me I shouldn't worry about it because Albert Einstein had no sense of direction. So we're back to him again. <laughs> and I, and then I found out that that was true because my children went to, went to school in Chicago and they had a, a historical blackboard of the famous people who had done a, what they called morning X's. They were assemblies. And back in the day, Albert Einstein had done one and he got lost in the school, which was a small building. <laughs> so it's made <laughs> me feel better about myself ever since. But the other yeah. aspect of, uh, well, there, there are a couple of things that, the her family was the kind of family you know they didn't have money because her father was an engineer who lost his job and he was never able to reestablish himself the mother worked um two jobs they were college graduates they were the father loved shakespeare he would talk about shakespeare plays at dinner um uh they would talk about politics they were extremely intelligent people and I one of the things that uh, impressed me about her father, um, uh, who invented a rotary engine, but never got and and never was able to to get credit or payment for it, and yeah. it was later taken by one of the automobile companies, but without any anything going to him. Um, but he had two daughters, and I grew up at a time when people didn't want to have daughters. I mean, it wasn't like China but, or, or India, but but daughters were not valued. And here's this man, he has Phyllis, he has a younger sister, and he he didn't ever, in all of his papers, and when I went through these scrapbooks, there were letters that he had written to his daughters, and there was never any slightest hint that he longed to have a son and that that he devalued 
his daughters. And I, I wow. thought that was really, really very cool. And I think it led to her success. She uh, went to, um, after graduating from Washington University and putting herself through with this gunner job, which she only had because men were in short supply then. So she gets right. this, pays for education, then gets a, um, a scholarship uh, or funding to go to graduate school at Radcliffe. So she moves to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a pretty interesting note. And then she told me that she was accepted right following, I guess she must have applied when she was at Radcliffe. She applied to Harvard Law School and was accepted. So I thought, wow, I really caught her in a lie because Harvard Law School didn't have yeah. women back there but then. Um, but I, so I did all kinds of research and questioning and I kind of believe her. I think they would have, she was, she, she had a memory that didn't fail. I don't know what she was like in her later years because I didn't know her then, but mm -hmm. she had this, um, uh, steel trap memory and she had much more energy than uh, normal people. And she was extremely organized. Mm -hmm. Like her office was immaculate. She there was never a paper out of place. She just, she just was uh, a, a a real. Um, um, she she had her energy level was extremely unusual, and that's why she was able to do what she did. But the really, I if you were to ask me what's the most interesting thing about her, I would say that she herself suffered terrible sexism. She had no interest in the ERA when it, when, you know, when it was first. Right. That's oh, a great detail too. Yeah. She said that she guessed she would be, she didn't really have an opinion, but she'd be mildly for it. And then, but her real interest was she wanted to be um, in the state department or in the defense department. Uh -huh. She would have moved her family and Fred would have gone along to with Washington to Washington. And she worked her heart out for Ronald Reagan and then he betrayed her. And she, so she suffered from being a woman. And yes. when I think about some of the people we've had as secretary of state and secretary of defense and how inadequate they, they were. Right. Yeah. Now, she would have been a huge hawk and people would have hated her, yeah. but Reagan really, um, you know, there were, there were promises made during the campaign that weren't kept and I have always thought that Nancy Reagan wouldn't have wanted her anywhere around. Right. Anything. And she she yeah. was certainly a big power in the administration. But but her interest was in nuclear weapons yeah. and and her interest was in the threat that China posed to the United States. Now, how much more contemporary can you get? Than no that? kidding. She was wow. talking about that back in the 50s and and, yeah. and, and in the subsequent decades. Yeah. And if you look at her books, I have never, the only book that I read was The Goldwater of Choice, Not an Echo, mm -hmm. um, because it was about politics. But the other books are, are technical books about defense. And right. I, I can't, I, I, you know, it's weird that a biographer wouldn't have read everything she wrote, but I admit that I did not. Well, that does, it makes sense in a way. Um, it's during the, the, the bulk of, of her activity in the book is during Vietnam um, and the cold war is still going on, which is situated in the cold war. And 
all of those were live issues throughout the Reagan presidency. Um, you know, I, the there's an there, there's so many contemporary issues here because there. I mean, I time and time again, I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, that that's relevant. That's relevant. That's relevant. That's relevant. The uh, I mean, putting aside the Equal Rights Amendment for for just a, a moment, because that's relevant too with the gender stuff and the marriage definition and all that stuff that came up later. She was predicting all of that. Um, but just in terms of like, for example, she was against getting involved in Vietnam, um, unless we were going to have how it was historically where Congress declares war and you fight to win. You don't just dilly dally in there and, and waste money and time. And since Korea, it seems like there's been, uh, I don't think Korea is the best. I don't know if that's the best example, but. It just seems like there has been endless wars. Like that's how people talk now is, oh, endless wars. And now there, there, there's concern about Ukraine maybe being the and next it's, and Afghanistan. It's being, called, it's being the, the war between Russia and Ukraine is being called a cold, our new Cold War mm. that will continue two years from now. I hope it's not true. And I feel very, yeah. I feel terrible for the people of Ukraine and what they've what they've endured and their strength in wanting to continue something that is not going to end well, probably. And that's, she would have been, she would have been commenting all over. And also there, you say that there are relevant things in the book. I, I, one of the, one of her biggest complaints about the ERA from the beginning was that it would, that if, if there is another draft, if we have to abandon our, Volunteer army and recruiting levels are down, right? So who knows? So there could be a draft. And is if there's a draft, do women have to register? And that was one of her. And if they register, do they go into combat in the same uh, numbers and methods that would be used to to, to uh, put men into combat? That's, I mean, some some of those issues are you know i don't know i'm very happy that that uh that gay marriage exists but phyllis the other part of her story which is not all that well understood is that she was a devout catholic religion mm -hmm. was was yeah. paramount in her life yeah. in a way that um and in her husband's life she there there is no way that phyllis either phyllis or fred would have married somebody of another faith so that's that's an that's another um that that comes across very well i think in the book uh you and in fact i think you even say that religion was was kind of like involved in every political issue and she she didn't shy away from it but there's another aspect of that which is interesting was that she was able to cobble together you mentioned a diverse coalition um, I think it was against the ERA, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. Bipartisan. Um, hmm. I'm not sure that I would call. I mean, her when when she would, they had what they called uh, telephone trees in the absence of other ways that we communicate now. So one woman would call another, would call another, would call another. They, I see. Were, they were middle aged, uh, white 
religious women. She had a lot of support in the Orthodox Jewish community, but um, the the women all seemed there was a real sameness to them uh, for sure, and they worshipped her. It was a yeah. it was it was a they. That was an interesting detail when you mentioned how she was able to the ERA chapter, the ERJ chapters are really a gold mine, I think, because, well, you have the text of the amendment so people can read it for themselves and think about it. And you think, okay, well, I was in the military. Does this mean that women have to do the same amount of pushups as men? Do they have to do the same amount of pull-ups? You know, if it's equal in all respect, um, then it seems like it would actually have the opposite effect. It would actually exclude women from the military because how do you, you don't have any special conditions or exemptions or anything like that. Um, I, I, just, just the military aspect would be hard for me to understand. And that's what she was really interested in. Although she, she was also uh, worried about organizations that were single sex, like the girl scouts Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, single sex high schools, many of which are Catholic or parochial schools, and um, single sex colleges, and that was a that was a big concern for her. Right, I, right. She died in two thousand on Labor Day two thousand sixteen, and I have often, as the debates in this country about transsexuals and uh yeah. girls sports teams that yeah. would have been something that would have oh, sent man. out no matter how yeah. you know she yeah. was at the end of her life she wasn't well she had cancer she wasn't you know she didn't lead that much of a public life but one of the really amazing things to me when she died um I was sitting in a restaurant having dinner with my husband. I think it was a, it was a Monday, well, Labor Day, it must have been a Monday night. We we were on our way home from a weekend in Michigan, and I knew immediately that I was going to be asked to write about her. And I started thinking about all these things, and I and I haven't stopped thinking about it because the issues that are so contentious today and are so much up for debate mm. would have been enormously interesting to her but right at the time that so september 2016 she um endorses over ted cruz uh donald trump and i oh I, really i didn't know that yes she endorsed trump and trump went to her funeral and i did and, not know that either and if, if you look at the video of trump at her funeral you know trump trump is a man with no religion. Yes, that's <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> I, I, it's hard, you know, well, who am I to say that? But I'm an observer. And there he is. And he just looked, but he but he loved Phyllis. And he gave, uh, I guess, what would count as a eulogy. And um, she saw something in him and she endorsed him mm -hmm. uh, in the late, probably like spring and summer of 2016 is when her well, that, that given your book does not surprise me because a lot of what these battles were were against the establishment right and so uh if i recall the 
that time period wasn't very long ago, but the it seemed like Trump was going against the establishment of the Republicans. And a lot of Republicans didn't like him because it, and they still don't because I mean, just look at his, his, dis, his disagreement to put it nicely with, with uh, the vice president Pence. Yeah, no, I was just, that's an that, example. Yeah. She, yeah. she would, um, Pence would be, so Pence was, uh, I may be, I may have this mixed up, but I think Pence grew up Catholic, but then became evangelical. Is that right? I'm pretty sure that's right. I'm and, not sure. But, I'm not sure. but that, um, but the way he presents himself and he just seems very pious. Uh-huh. And so I think she would like that about him, but he has no spark, which is why he's going to yeah. have to drop out of this uh, primary fight, I think. Yeah. But her people, Ted Cruz was her kind of guy, you know, Harvard Law mm-hmm. School. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. You know, sharp, smart people hated mm-hmm. her and Donald Trump. She was that's a right. moral, she had moral values. That, yeah, yeah, that's you right. Know, I, I don't, I thought they were, you know, she was too strict in almost every way, but those were her, those were her values. And then you have this guy who's been married three times and has all kinds yeah. of affairs and is, you know, kind of a, you know. A yeah, I think it's, one. I think it's, I think it's accurate to say that Trump was not reading the Phyllis Schlafly report growing up. <laughs> No, I mean, so, so Trump, when he when might Trump, not have even known who she was, I don't know. I, I'm sure he didn't because he doesn't know a lot of things. But I think, I think one of the things about um, Trump is that he was mostly a Democrat. He would have thought Phyllis Schlafly was, uh, you know, was really far out there. But yeah, her, you know, the Republican, what did she see in him? Do you what? I mean, it's speculation, but I'm just curious. She thought think. she thought that the country was in a state of disrepair. And somebody, a disruptor, I don't know that she used that word and it's become mm-hmm. kind of cliche, but a disruptor had to come in and throw things around and turn things around and turn things upside down and change things. Uh-huh. And otherwise, this country was going to what uh, Joe Biden is always talking about, you know, the soul of the country. Well, I think she really thought the country lost its soul. And it's not that she thought that that Trump was a uh, was a moral man, but she could see that Trump wasn't going to put up with anything or or that that he was going to he would. I think she saw him as somebody who was going to get stuff done. And the stuff that he promised to get done was stuff that she wanted. How she would feel about him now, I'm not sure, because I don't, I don't think she'd like him very much in these years. Yeah. But but she really felt abandoned and messed with by the establishment Republican Party. And she had a lot of resentments from the time the women's Republican group to her disappointment when Reagan didn't keep his promise and give her an administrative job. He might not have made her secretary of state or secretary, but she could have become an assistant uh, secretary of defense. She wanted she wanted to use her expertise and and that's what her interest was. And it was her interest from the 50s on. Um, I have a story. I'm not sure if it's in the book, but when my daughter was born in December 1980 and the book comes out in maybe January 81, and there's a WGN radio in Chicago, which was a great station. It's not anymore, but it was. And 
And there was a guy named Milt Rosenberg who taught at the University of Chicago and he was quite conservative and, and uh, controversial. And he invited Schlafly and me on. And the subject was not the ERA, which I could talk about in my sleep. The subject was nuclear throw weights. So why <laughs> I, I only said yes, because my book was just out and I wanted the publicity, but I'd also like given birth four weeks before and I'm in the studio and my husband came with us and he's holding our daughter. I could hear her crying through the door because she was hungry. And I had nothing to add to this conversation. They were just talking right past me. They both knew a lot, tons about the subject. And then I went into the cafeteria and I had to nurse this baby. And Phyllis, you know, she had a couple of things that she said. She has these six children. She home, she kept them at home until second grade, all six of them. Mm -hmm. She taught all six of them how to read yep. wow. and using phonics which is yeah. another issue that has come back into play. Yes. And remember, she sent me a phonics workbook that she used with her children and said, when your daughter is there, this is how you teach her to read. I believe in phonics and that's how I did. Mm. Teach. But I sent them to kindergarten. She didn't do that. And all six babies, she breastfed and talked about that all the time. Like, I don't remember the way she breastfed each one of them for a year or nine months or whatever it was. So there I am, like, you know, basically in pain with this baby. And then Phyllis comes in and I thought I would just like, I didn't, I wanted to monitor the table. I was like totally embarrassed. So she sat down with us and then she opens up. She always carried a big bag with all her stuff in it. And she and she takes out a box from you know the Tiffany boxes, those blue boxes. Sure. And she takes out this box and she hands the it jewelry to, box. A jewelry, yeah. you know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, and she she hands it to Steve, my husband, and and she says congratulations and keep going or something like that. No, I could think is I can never have another baby. This is too painful. So, but anyway, we I I open the box and it's a silver spoon. And it was engraved with the initials of my daughter. So I brought oh, it home wow. and decided I'm not putting this away. And I really didn't even want to accept it. I thought there was something wrong in accepting it, but I was just like too out of it to do anything with it. And then when uh, when when we moved to rice cereal for Rebecca, it, it ended up in the garbage disposal and it was destroyed. Oh, <laughs> so no. Oh, I used no. to think that there was something, I don't know, sort of metaphorical about it. But so that mm. was her, like... You know, Kay Graham wanted to put me in handcuffs and in prison and wow. she misunderstood, but her policies, like I, to this day, I disagree with almost everything that Phyllis um, pushed. But the other thing is, you know, it's coming back before Congress now is the Equal Rights Amendment. Hmm. And I think it could go to the Supreme Court because there's a yeah. question about the extension and there's a question about work that Phyllis did that she was responsible and that was getting states that had um, mm -hmm. approved the amendment to rescind their approval. Right. And there's no, I don't think there's any case law about that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, but the, and it's coming back. The uh, Either the Washington Post or the New York Times had a very long article about the mm -hmm. uh, about a week ago. 
Oh, that that's great material for for uh, government classes, for example, in American politics and constitutional law too. Because and you and by the way, the the way you set it up in the book is is really great because you you have detail about, for example, just sparks thought if about uh, whether it's fair. For example, I could see students talking about this where if if it's fair that you need the state to approve it, but then you don't you ignore the state if they say, no, we don't want the approval anymore. I mean, what seems like it could go both ways or it should go both ways. And there was also there was also the extension, but there yeah, but the extension. many legal scholars have pointed out that there is no time limit in other amendments of the constitution yeah. i think the 19th amendment may be about maybe one of them but i'm i'm not certain but that is going to be that's going to be a, a big issue especially in the wake of the uh, dobbs decision on roe v wade that's i see of course phyllis okay. like, I think she she probably doesn't didn't even believe in a six week ban. I think she thought abortion should be, yeah, uh, you know, should just be blanket. Uh, uh-huh. But so she would have been definitely against a constitutional right. Oh yeah, for all fifty she states. Have, yeah, Hobbs would have been her, uh, you know, her day in the sun. She would have been very, yeah. uh, very happy about that. I'd like to read a quote from the book 261 because i thought this was really uh, an example of an interesting uh insight you have this uh chapter called how she did it which was when you're describing the era battle i mean it looks impossible for anybody to beat this thing it is it's almost inevitable you got hollywood celebrities like alan alda and carol burnett and you've got the president you've got both parties and you have the first lady you have Betty Ford. First lady, yes. Both parties, that's what I mean. Like, uh, you got Republicans and Democrats. You've got, um, it, it, you point out that every state, and it, it was like 30. Uh, it seemed like it was about 30 when Phyllis got involved. It was definitely in the 20s of the states. Oh, yeah. They, 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 it was going to be uh, approved within weeks. And the, what made the difference was once she got in. She stopped Yeah. It. And you you point out that every state that approved it, it wasn't even close. the 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 votes were way not lopsided. way lopsided. Yeah. So she gets in, and by the time this is toward the later part of the book, so by the the reader, if they've read the book, <laughs> they're at this point they're they're thinking, yeah, Phyllis can do this. If anybody can do this, Phyllis can do this. Well, you you have this great instinct of how did she do it? which is a great question for historians. So you on page 261, I got to get some quotes in here. You you mention Sybil Bellis, an East Alton resident and active ERA backer, touched on the key to her opponent's success. Quote, you find ERA people just as committed, but they can't get all that excited about it. They get mad but it's not the same sort of thing because it isn't personal loyalty. Right. Okay. I don't feel a personal loyalty to Ellie Smeal, the president of now I support now that's the national organization of women and everything it does. 
but I can't see myself traveling around to do things for Ellie's meal just because it's Ellie's meal. But that's the end of the quote, but Phyllis Schlafly got women by the thousands, tens of thousands. She, she attracted, she was magnetic. I mean, she was repulsive and magnetic at the same time. Kind of like Trump in a way. Yeah, but much better. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't seen Phyllis for years, but whenever you saw her, I didn't, I wasn't a fan of her taste and clothes, but she was always so immaculate. Her hair was perfect. She had beautiful skin, beautiful eyes. Um, yeah. She, her clothes were just, she was just put together. I doubt she spent any time at all. I think she probably had them organized so she could just, with her eyes closed, she could put on a peach colored suit she was really big on the colored peach which 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 flattered her but she she never looked she just she was like i i don't know much about this new movie barbie but it's all over the newspapers i i really don't know anything about it except that phyllis had that you know people would make fun of her and say that she looked like she was made out of plastic but what that meant is that most people you know sometimes they don't look so great especially if they've been up all night they've been on an air flight and phyllis was like always she was just she just had um organizational skills that um were so unusual and that helped her in this fight but i think there was also something that was unfinished about her life because domestic issues were not what she when they were her from the time she was a schoolgirl, she was interested in international affairs and she was certainly interested in fighting um, any kind of uh, concession that the United States might make to China. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just watching CNN before I came on here and watching John Kerry over there. And I was really interested when Janet Yellen went uh, a couple weeks ago and she did those ridiculous, like fast paced bows, not <laughs> to the president, but to her um, counterpart in right. the economic sphere. And it's just like, like history repeating itself. I'm not sure it's, you know, but, but, but it stays the same. And yeah. something who was, she was a totally public person. Yeah. But she also had, um, she did have relationships with her children. She was a good, she wasn't a fake good mom. She was a good mom. She's very uh, strict. That's a key. And, yeah. That, that you are so careful to present that. And it, it, that clearly is a concern of yours. I wondered if we could go back to that Christmas when you first went there, you had had lunch. What's your takeaway from that? I mean, well, there were a couple, it, couple of things that were really was there anything that you changed your mind about at that point about her personally or her positions or how she's perceived? I I think they asked me to leave my uh, stuff, my bags and notepads and batteries and so on in her office. And I remember that she always made the claim that her children, she would work and her children would sit at little desks and they would 
um, read or they would study or whatever it was that they were doing. And there was a little desk and, and, and the youngest child, Anne, was really young. So I imagined her sitting at that desk. That wasn't BS. That was real. <laughs> then her obsession about organic food <laughs> was really struck me as like crank. Those were the days when, you know, you drank Coca-Cola and ate hot dogs and French fries, but she never, wow. she was in very, she was in very good physical shape, but she was a, a, a crank about organic food before I'd even really knew that that was an issue. She'd go, she, she gave me this long uh, recitation about getting up at some ungodly hour and going to a farm and getting uh, unpasteurized milk and and um, fresh eggs. And then she did this. It's whole like, thing. how does she have the time for that? <laughs> well, she did have a housekeeper. Oh, OK. Uh, it's often said that she had a cook. And I don't think I think the housekeeper might have done some of the cooking. But she did uh, take great pride in making her own wild rice. And she said, don't eat that. And if you ever have any children, don't eat the stuff that like you get from your local Chinese restaurant or something. And hmm. she did it all by her. Her rice was never white rice. It would be some kind of long grain brown stuff that doesn't taste so good. And she mm -hmm. had all vegetables in it. So she those those two uh, those two things uh, really stuck out. And also this incredible house that they lived in. It wasn't there was nothing conventional about the house. This the floors were stone. It had big windows and it looked out over the Mississippi. And it was like, you know, on a bluff. And it was just, it was a very kind of a minimalist, interesting house. That was not her interest, was not in having in in she was a she you know, she was just unconventional. She didn't she didn't care about decorating her the way she presented herself had everything to do with being able to persuade people to her causes. It wasn't yeah. vanity, really. It was it was it was a tool that she had to bring people over to her side. There's a picture in, of, of her home office. Uh, you can see it looks like it's from the hallway and and all you see is books behind and it looked very impressive from, I mean, that's her home office. <laughs> yeah. She's a housewife of, of like six kids and she's, she has a library in her house. And look like she, she always, um, so she was, uh, she was a very uh, attractive woman, really. And Where did her obsession with, with organics and, and that stuff come from? Oh, I mean, because oh, there was no whole. There's no Whole Foods back then. So, I mean, how did she get well, on that bandwagon? Well, no, her thing was going to farmers and getting it directly from the source. Huh. She must have read about, um, you know, about the... Uh, was it was suspicion of the FDA or was it suspicion? Could have been, of, you know, I'm sure she was probably uh, one of the people who didn't want our water to be chlorinated. I mean, she was quite extreme in some ways. But you gave an uh, example of the of the organic peanut butter. This is before organic peanut butter. You could buy it on the shelf. She somehow got some and and it was gross and disgusting. And yeah, I can't and remember. Oily, the yeah. But she yeah, she um, and, and she always um, she was disciplined. So she took. Yes. She worked out and she would watch 
also, I don't know how she did this, whether you could record back then, but she always said that she watched the three network uh, mm -hmm. evening news and wow. uh, while she exercised in front of the TV set. I don't know how she did that, but she told that she did it. Maybe she did a day late and had some way of of getting tapes or something. I mean, it would have been early for that, but she she always said she did that. So she uh she 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 worked out. She didn't do anything like like run or play tennis. I mean, she didn't have is when I remember I don't remember who it was, but somebody some journalist asked her what her hobbies were and her her response and she wasn't kidding she said nuclear throw weights now if you ask me to define that i couldn't define that and then there was this woman who was the ellie smeal of her day named karen crow she lived here in evanston i got to know her quite well she's she's since died and she and phyllis would do the speaking gigs and they'd be paid for it it was a way of bringing in some income and and uh karen uh, told me that they would, before they went up on stage, they'd go into the girls. The, a lot of these were in like university buildings. They'd go in the ladies' restroom and they'd be standing in front of the mirror and Phyllis would be putting on makeup or refreshing her lipstick or whatever it was. And they would laugh about, they, they actually liked each other. And, but then they would get on stage and just throw bombs at each other and it become really contentious. And Karen Crow says to um, to Phyllis, they should, they'd looked out at the audience and it was packed. And most of those people were there to scream at Phyllis. They weren't supporters at all. And uh, Karen Crow says to her, um, it's like we're Mick, Mick Jagger. And then Phyllis' response is, who's Mick Jagger? And, <laughs> and that's, that, that's a real... That's anecdote. a real response. Like, it's a real response. And... and and it wasn't for a fact. She didn't know who Mick Jagger was because she liked classical music. She liked opera and she loved Broadway show tunes. That was her thing. And that's it. That so. makes me feel a little bit better because there's something had to give on this. Like she couldn't keep up with everything. She couldn't go to law school and have six kids and do all this crazy stuff and also listen to the Rolling Stones at the same time. <laughs> well, she went to uh, Washington University Law School, which is quite a good law school, mm. but she didn't try to go reapply to Harvard. And I bet she would right. have gotten in because she would have been a persona non grata at yeah. Harvard. Yeah. But she went to WashU, and um, her classmates would call me because they wanted me to write about what a phony she was. She was never, they said she was never in class, but no, she probably wasn't a class. She probably looked at somebody's notes or something, or, hmm. you know, this was later in her life when she went to law school, she graduated. I'm not sure if she was top of her class. I don't remember that she might've been. And uh, later on, I think in two, maybe 2000 something, uh, WashU gave her an honorary degree and the hmm. faculty and the students turned their back on her. You know how they do that. When <laughs> yeah, during... she was canceled. Yeah, she was canceled. And I, yeah. my guess is she didn't care, but she was the her fellow law students hated the fact that she was admitted and that she went through in the normal time and got her degree. And yeah, just she wanted that law degree, not to practice law, but she thought it would right. be better. More incredible. Yeah, because yeah. people kept 
throwing that in her face that she couldn't talk about the Constitution without, which I think is ridiculous. I think anybody yeah. can read the Constitution and have their own thoughts about it. But that's, uh, I, I wondered, well, I'll just say this about the book. I, I'll say that when you read the book, um, I can, it's such a fair portrayal of her. And it would be such a delicate thing with such a fiery subject. And it was clear your professionalism is high, high, high. You are doing, you're, you're writing a book for the ages here. You're not, this is not a hit job. Uh, you are, you, and, and it comes across that you respect her, but it's not always clear you agree with her, but right. you, you are, uh, it's almost like that's not important. It's you want to set the record straight about what you've observed and what you've encountered here and let people decide for themselves about her legacy and what she stood for. But you don't want to be unfair to her. And you point out time and time again, the sexism <laughs> against her, which is so ironic. Yes, it, it is. There's so many ironic parts of this story and you just, you, that's what stands out as being so true. It's like, yeah, that, that sounds like it. That's exactly the way it would have happened. Was there any part of this story and this encounter with this subject that, that changed your mind about anything or caused you to rethink anything? Well, not on the issues. I mean, I'd be a backer of the ERA as it goes through the next time. I certainly am a uh, pro-choice person. I believe in gay marriage. I believe in rights for transsexuals. So I, I don't know that. No, not really. But the, I, at, in addition to writing a number of biographies, I always really struggle like Catherine Graham hated my book but she should not have because it's a very fair humanizing look at a woman who's more a legend than she is an actual person Bill Clinton hated my book I wrote I've written many many long-form magazine profiles some of them written with as many as 80 or more interviews. I'm very heavy on interviews and very much against cut and pasting from other people's work. And I always, what I struggled with in those is to be fair to my subject. And what I found after a, uh, for example, early in my career, right around the time the Schlafly book came out, I wrote a profile of the then president of the University of Chicago, a woman named Hannah Gray. She was the first woman president of a major university, and she should have been president of Yale because she was chancellor, but they couldn't, they weren't at the point yet when they could name a woman. And I struggled with that, and I tried to be fair, fair, fair. Well, she's another person who doesn't talk to me. I live here in Chicago, and I have a lot of people who don't talk to me. One of the daily brothers. Uh, uh, he was transportation secretary in the uh, uh, Bill Daly, I forget. And he was chief of staff. He was Obama's chief of staff for a short time. And uh, talking about Rahm Emanuel? Uh, I, no, no, sorry. I, no, well, Bill, no, Bill Daly. Oh, was, sorry. I got he you. was, uh, he was uh, um, 
Obama's chief of staff. And he's a controversial figure here. But I wrote about him. I tried so hard. And then I find out, you know, all these people just like hate me. I can, <laughs> there are so many people who don't talk to me because of my books and, and not, people want puff pieces. And that's yes. not what I, people want me to, uh, Rahm Emanuel is another one. I, I was a chief political uh, writer, uh, blogger, actually, for Chicago Magazine. I wrote a lot of pieces on Rahm Emanuel, and he was another one who I think is not speaking to me, but maybe eventually, you know, things happen. He's now having a great, he's he's actually a very popular ambassador to Japan, which is really interesting because he diplomat, he's not. He, mm. um, I never heard, uh, I'm thinking of Rahm Emanuel, who was extremely profane. It just, that was his character characteristic. I never heard Phyllis Schlafly swear ever. I would have been shocked if she had ever said, you know, used any profanity. Never, never, never. She's very proper, you mm. know, really, really uh, interesting woman. I could have, if I hadn't been busy with other stuff, I, there could there was a second book that could have been written about her. Yes, uh, absolutely. And not anything that I'm interested in doing now. I kind of had my time with her and that's it well, you have this career as a biographer and I, it's clear to me i mean i'm a professor and i i see in you so much integrity uh that i don't see in my students and i'm i'm really worried about the future generation carol because uh you're you're right that the the social media has changed things uh the the just having a phone on yes. uh, on them the, there's reduced attention spans there's um taping, I, I, taping professors and then going viral with it right yes that's right yes uh there's there's an unfair um evaluation system i think of the professors it's not like it used to be where the student was wanted to do really well because the professor, you know, could fail you <laughs> and, and there's nothing you could do about it. Now there's like a, there's a, it's almost like a popular level evaluation system, which just reduces the, the standards and inflates grades at the same time. And so the, the whole thing is just worthless and there's just, just a pointless exercise of uh and i've seen it i've seen it just in the time just in the two decades i've been teaching i've i've seen it go down and i'm really concerned because i don't see the the integrity for professionalism to do good work and to 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 not just go along with the crowd and like you said they want puff pieces there's all these temptations to just reduce the level of work and and the level of quality and uh people don't seem to have the long view of you know trying to get at the heart of the matter of working hard to find the truth of the matter and so i i have to admit i'm i'm a little bit um sad and i'm i, I wouldn't say i'm terrified but i'm i'm sickened by what i see on the college campuses and even with libraries i'm worried just 
what libraries keep and what they throw away. Like I've, I've been to libraries where they're selling books and I say, well, why do you, why are you discarding this book? Oh, because it's not checked out very often. And I just mm -hmm. think, so the, the, the level of being checked out, that's what's, that's what's making these decisions for future generations. And uh, that, that concerns me because they have, they have room for the books. It's not, it's not that they don't have room. They have, they've got huge grass meadows and I mean, they're making decisions to, of what they're going to use and what they're not going to use. And, um, I, I, when I, when I read your book, I, I, it, it makes me feel like there's been something lost and I'm not sure exactly. It's not a partisan issue exactly. Uh, it might feel like it to me because I was on the college campuses in Los Angeles mm. and I was treated unfairly uh, because I'm a Republican. So it does appear that way that it's partisan, but I feel like it's a deeper cultural issue of attention spans and, and uh, people don't have conversations anymore. They don't, they talk past each other. They don't talk to each other. And I wondered, um, when you do your work for your biographies, what, what are you trying to do? Like, what's, is there something for, foremost in your mind that you're trying to, when you come across like a new book that you wanted to do, how do you make the decision? That's the topic. And then how do you make a decision of how to accomplish what you want to do? Well, um, what I do is I kind of flood the zone with, I get into, my books take three or four years to write, maybe, maybe less, but I make a list of who I want to talk to. And I talk to every, and this is true for magazine profiles too. I talk to everybody I find, can find. I talk to their elementary school teachers, their elementary school classmates, every member of their family I can find. Um, and just, I, Everything is very interview heavy. And when I started, um, and of course that requires having a uh, subject where there's still people around. And in, in the case of Alice Longworth, she had died before I started writing about her, but I still found all these, what they call cave dwellers in Georgetown who knew her. I found political people who knew her, a lot of them were really old a lot of them couldn't hear my questions because they were so old and deaf um but i just i i that's my it's a re, i've never had an assistant on a book i do this all myself i've never had anybody help me in any way with research or with transcribing but i'll end up with in the days when i was using cassette tapes you know on those hard plastic cases sure. I'd have, like, they almost reached to the ceiling of my office and I had to transcribe them all. I mean, it was just, it's a <laughs> wow. ridiculous um, amount of work. I know there are other ways of doing it, but I still don't do that. One of my uh, children, uh, all three of my children are writers. And one of mm -hmm. them told me about a program you can use now where you don't have to transcribe because it'll it'll uh, transcribe it for you, but it's not accurate. And so I wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to use it. I'd have to, I'd have to listen back to make sure that I had it right. Yeah. So I'm really out of, I'm out of fashion and kind of a fuddy duddy about this stuff. And I'm not, I'm working on a memoir now. So mm -hmm. I'm cool. not, 
Um, but it's mo a memoir that's mostly, it takes off uh, a story about my uh, uh, a brother of mine who died in uh, 2018. But, mm -hmm. but it starts with our child and, and then it goes with our to our time at the University of Illinois. He was there at the same time I was. And then it, then it's mostly about his life. But after this is done, I'm gonna write another political book. And I thought for a time of writing a, a book about Joe Biden, and I'm glad I didn't. I've written quite a bit about Biden and I am not an admirer. So now for somebody like a Biden, I it would be difficult for me to write that book because I have such strong uh, feelings uh, about him, and I'm the people in our circle, uh, my friends, my relatives, all like him a lot, and they're very worried about the possibility that Trump could be president. I'm worried about that too, um, but I'd love to see a Democrat who I could support. I'd be happy if Elizabeth Warren would run or Amy Klobuchar. Um, I don't like Newsom, but there are other uh, Democrats that I could support. But I really do worry about Trump becoming president again. But I also worry about Joe Biden becoming president because he's clearly in cognitive uh, decline. And I don't understand why people don't see that. You watch right. him. Yeah. Well, the last thing that I watched was him uh, having a conversation in the White House with the president of Israel, Herzog. And he was clearly asleep. He mm -hmm. was dozing. And then if you watch the CNN coverage of it or C-SPAN, you see he had big note cards that told him what to say, but it was just incoherent. And I will say this to my husband, who's a big Biden supporter, or other people, how could you, oh, he's a great president. The economy is great under him. He does great things. And, and it's like, it's, I feel like people have blinders on. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So- Anyway, that's my political. Well, yeah, you have a lot of integrity, and I, I just, I don't, I don't understand it either on that. Um, what do you think of RFK Jr.? Um, I think he's deeply weird. <laughs> I think he could be. I think the. I think he could beat Trump. Uh maybe you know, but he's he's just his views are out of sync with reality i think and um i think you know taking your shirt off and doing uh push-ups and maybe yeah, talks, i'm I not sure that. and then giving and then saying on air that he he takes a testosterone supplement i don't know if you yeah, saw that that, that doesn't am, surprise me I am a complete political junkie. So I know anecdotes about every single person who's on the political stage and could talk about it for hours. But I there, there's no way well, somebody of his age could grow that kind of muscle without testosterone supplements. Yeah, but he he had a medical reason for, for doing it. I don't remember what it is, but he is really uh in, in amazing. He's what he's in his late sixties. Um, Marianne Williamson is, is just, uh, I don't know. I can't take her seriously. Um, so unless, you know, this is really off subject and, but the, unless, um, Biden has four people working for his campaign, which leads me to believe possibly that he's not going to run. I think Jill Biden is really wants him to run and, 
I'm not sure about Joe. I just don't think, I think some days he's better than others, but I think maybe that's true of people who are in, or I think he has dementia. And, and yeah. I, you know, and I, I find it, I, I, who's running the country? That's a very good question. I don't know that it's his current, his current chief of staff. I think it's his former chief of staff who left to work for the campaign, supposedly, and I can't come up with his name as we're talking, but he was the one who seemed to be in charge. He was there for Biden's first two years. Gotcha. Um, so I find the state of politics, sometimes I get really turned off by politics, but I just finished um, reading a book that I love about Edith Wilson, who is Woodrow Wilson's second wife, and when uh, Woodrow had a, ma- I don't know whether massive stroke is the right way to describe it, but he had a serious stroke mm-hmm. and he couldn't, basically couldn't get out of bed and she was running the country. It's mm-hmm. a very, uh, it's written by Cokie Roberts' daughter. And I recommend it. It's a really interesting look at governance because she was uh, uh, his second wife. He was deeply in love with her. She she ran, her family ran a jewelry store in D.C. called Galt's. She was Edith Galt. And she was a widow and the two of them got married and then he had the stroke and then she was been basically making the decisions. Wow. And so it has- I know he died shortly after um, the- shortly after world war one mm-hmm. um but he did he did, did die in like 1920 or something like that shortly <laughs> after yes he was well it was after it was sometime after harding became president and he lived for a short time but he was paralyzed on one side his speech was affected his memory um he wasn't i mean he he, he was coherent as I was reading it, this is kind of a terrible thing to say, but as I was reading about post-stroke times, I was thinking we're sharper than Biden is. Mm. You never, you know, you never know. Wow. And and one of the things that uh, the author uh, uh, analyzed was his, Woodrow Wilson's, after the stroke, he would go off on tangents and start mm-hmm. talking about things. And, and you see that with Joe Biden. Yeah. And then you see him say, Joe Biden, he's always saying, no lie. Um, this isn't hyperbole. Yeah. So I'm kind of surprised that he says the word hyperbole, but it knows what it means. But, but, and then you know that he's going to say something that's not true. Said, right after he says, no lie. This is no <laughs> lie. This is, I was right before we, I got on with you, I was watching him give a speech about the economy. And every time I watch one of those speeches, I have this feeling of kind of a knot in my stomach waiting for something terrible to happen. Yeah. But he, you know, today he was in good form and he was reading that teleprompter well. So, anyway. yeah. Now, w- when you went to the University of Illinois, did you major in English? Yes, no. I did. But my, I also took education courses so I could teach. Okay. I, yeah, that's right. And um, uh, and then my husband uh, uh, got into Harvard Law School. I moved to Cambridge with him. We were already married. And um, I taught in a Boston public school for a short time. And it was terrible. I mean, wow. it was just so disorganized. And I had 
girls in the back of the class who were, were had babies and they were feeding their babies. And this was eighth grade. I wasn't teaching high school. I think there wasn't a high school. Wow. I had a guy come in. He walked in off the fire escape and um, they he came up behind me and he put like bubble gum in my hair. And I was just, I had really long, long red hair. And I was like, so upset. So I ran Which out school of, was this? Which school it was, was a, it was a public school in Dorchester in Boston. And I had been offered a suburban school job, but I thought I want to get in the trenches here. And, 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 and so I went into the principal's office. He took a scissors out of his desk and he just cut my hair because he said, you're never going to get this out. And I thought, oh my what goodness. am I doing here? But the, <laughs> the one thing that happened that was really heartening, I knew I want to be a writer. And I knew if I stayed there, I'd end up as a teacher. So when, I, did you, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Was it before uh, college? Yes, it was in high school. I knew How, that. What I, was the experience? How did you figure that out? Um, I had a wonderful English teacher. And writing was something I wrote the our eighth grade graduation. It was a total cliche, but a little uh, uh, recitation. And when we graduated, uh -huh. I, I was always I I all I did was read books, and I I just wanted I wanted to be a writer. And from a very very early time, but I didn't I didn't have any uh, mentors, and I had to kind of figure it out by myself. But but this class of eighth graders, I thought. I was so disillusioned and then the system sent somebody in to observe me and these kids who like wouldn't listen to anything I said, they were totally disruptive and disorderly. They knew that that woman was there to rape me and they were perfect. And I just, I thought, wow, these kids really saw something and they just, I, I was so impressed by that. But anyway, then I went, um, uh, uh, I went to graduate school at Boston College and got a nine-month master's degree and um, uh, thought about getting a PhD, but I didn't have money to pay for that. And my, I grew up in a family. I had two older brothers, and my father didn't, he was a wonderful, lovely man, but he didn't believe in educating women. He didn't mm -hmm. believe in higher. And you know who else didn't believe in higher education for women? The man who had been pre president of Princeton University, and that's Woodrow Wilson. That's he right. That women were, he was all he was also really a racist he did yes he was and but but the his views on women and education he had hmm. three daughters and he had two really smart wives who he depended on for counsel and then he had these terrible my father just thought it was a waste of money because you know and eventually he he put some forth for me to go to graduate school but you got an MA, MA in English literature or writing? Yeah, or? It, was, it was wonderful because huh. there weren't a lot of schools that would offer a master's degree. They wanted you to get to go for a PhD. And I, yeah. I, I would have, I mean, was I'm it bad. an MFA or was no, it a master of arts? And it okay. was an MA, master of arts in English. And the my teachers were about half of them were, um, well, most of them were priests. They have Boston College Jesuit Jesuit, school. Yeah. They were the best teachers. I had such I had such a good education there, but only lasted nine months, and then and then I had to go out in the working world. And so, so you 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 started in public school in Chicago, is that right? I started and finished in public school in Chicago. I went and you, and it was it was the public school that you thought I'm going to be a writer. Well, it was in in high school, but I was um, mm -hmm. I I I consider myself I was. 
I didn't have any, when, when I went to public school, they did some kind of IQ test before you entered kindergarten. And then they put you in classes, either the top class or medium class. I had a, br a brother who was extremely successful, but he had dyslexia, which wasn't even a word that you heard in the 1950s. And he was put in remedial classes. So I was always in the top class, but I didn't pay attention. I used to <laughs> hide a novel or whatever it was that I was reading or a biography wow. in front of a... Uh, textbook when I got to high school I started worrying that I was going to end up being my mother and I didn't want she was she was a very creative woman but she never did anything except be a housewife and I didn't want that mm -hmm. so I um, I really started working because I knew I needed a scholarship and then I got a I think it was $65 a year in tuition might have been a semester to go to the U of I in Urbana which was the main is the main campus yep and I got a kind of, I thought, a middling education there, but off I went and, you know, I was able to, I, I was able to, to carve this career out. And I, I had a teacher, an English teacher who I've written about in the memoir that I'm working on now, who had been in the OSS and she had one arm and wow. she, she wore, um, floor, flower design dresses and then she had a a wooden arm and a and wow. a wooden hand, and she always wore a glove over it so one of my classmates was disruptive and she said to him um uh go to the principal's office i don't want you in the classroom and he said to her um if you keep this up i'm gonna open the window and let a woodpecker in and oh then and, and he was suspended for a while, but for some reason that um, teacher, she really made me appreciate what made writing work and what makes literature work. And in those years, the bigger words you could come up with, the more adjectives and adverbs, and you never should say any. You never wanted a really declarative sentence. You never wanted to be straightforward. Something. It was always all, and then the, the more you did that, the high raise you got. If you did it for this teacher, you'd get a failing grade. And so I learned how to how to write, and um, yeah. And then and then I went off, and in August I think I'm going to my fifty fifth high school reunion, and mostly like it's me. I mean, people are just dead or they're infirm. <laughs> and very depressing, you know. You as you get you know, as you get into your seventies, it's just, yeah. that's what happens. Well, you are extremely sharp and I'm looking behind you and I see all these books. And so for, for those who can't see this because you're on Apple, uh, you know, podcasts or Spotify and it's audio only Carol's office behind her, it's floor to ceiling books. You, you clearly have had a long career. How do you get, how did you get in? to writing for a magazine and the, how does one go about writing for a magazine? I'm sure it's different now because everything's online and the, the funding is different. The it's all about clicks. And back then it wasn't about clicks. So and, and there's not long, except maybe in the New Yorker, but okay. and there's a handful of magazines, a long form journalism is people's attention spans are too short. And, um, but I got, I got to it. I mean, I deliberately did this. I decided that I was going to become a book reviewer. So I got that Schlafly. That Schlafly book is what made my career because I reviewed the book. I got the profile of her in Chicago Magazine on the cover. 
using that magazine, sending it to an editor in New York. I got my first book contract and I just kept, I just kept going um, from there, but that's the way I got started. I got started as a book reviewer and I kind of recommended you can still do that. I got my first assignment uh, from the Chicago Daily News. I think I mentioned that, but then I went to the library to a, a reference book called Literary Marketplace, LMP. And it has every, back in those days, I haven't looked at it in years and I'm sure it's an online thing now, not paper, but I looked at, it had a section on book review sections. Mm -hmm. So I, and and you couldn't, I mean, I had to type individual letters and I probably sent out like 50 letters to every book review editor in the, and then I put in this first daily news review of a terrible novel, but I, I, I cut and pasted it and put the, the daily news logo at the top. And I said, this is an example of a recent review without saying the truth was, is the only thing I'd ever had published. And I got the Baltimore Sun book editor sent me um, Gore Vidal's book novel, Burr. It was a big deal in its day. Um, and I reviewed that. He printed it. And that's how I got the assignment from uh, the Tribune. And I was just able to just, it was like walking upstairs and um and then I started writing books and I wrote books forevermore. And that's been my career. So it's, and it's been an interesting career. I'm, you know, glad that I did this instead of something else. And do you, do know. you have, when you're writing, what's your uh, standard operating procedure? Do you get up and write in the morning with coffee or do you get up early? Are you a night owl? I'm a night owl. And it's yeah. really, because one of the things that, you mentioned your wife didn't want you to buy another book. So <laughs> most of the books that I buy now and read, I'm always reading uh, fiction and nonfiction, usually more than one at a time. Mm -hmm. And I put them on my iPad because if we okay. don't have, this is a big house and there it's not right at, uh, on the other side of this wall, floor to ceiling books about politics arranged in a way that I can, and some valuable books too, because I've got a lot of collection about Teddy Roosevelt. And then we actually have a library in this house and we're thinking about moving because our kids oh. all, all, all three of our children live in New York. So New York city, mm -hmm, two in Brooklyn and one in the East village. So I, wow. I, the a real estate agent told me that I think the bookshelves in our house are the most attractive part of the house. And she said, they look terrible. You have to give, you know, most of them away or put them in storage. And the ones that remain, she said, arrange them by size and color. So I said, no, I'm not going to arrange them by size and color. <laughs> but I don't, I think it's going to be hard for, you know, we have, I've got to figure out what to do with all these books. We have thousands and thousands of them. And, oh my gosh. and, they, and they express, my husband is very much a book person too. Mm -hmm. So they express who we are, but it's yes. not. And we went, we've been looking at apartments. We go into these apartments, they're beautiful apartments, but they there's no sign of intelligent life. You don't yeah. see books. You see flat screen TVs. All right. right. I start rating them. 
where are the bookshelves? I, or my husband will send me an online thing and they have these tours that you take through the apartments and you can see what the rooms in. And I, I look at him and say, there are no bookshelves. And, he, and then he says, will you stop that, please? You can build bookshelves if you want bookshelves. Just look at, look at the apartment and see if you like the layout. Anyway, we're not going to move right away, but, but the books are a real impediment. They're, right. They yeah. become an, an almost an albatross. You don't know how to, gotcha. yeah. how to do so. Anyway, that sounds like a big move, Carol, to move from there to New York City because you're. Oh, no, we're not moving to New York City. Oh, we're okay. Staying... I got oh, no, you. No, we're not. I misunderstood. We're staying, <laughs> we're staying in Chicago because my husband has a law practice there and he's kind of kept the whole. One of the reasons why I've been able to do what I do is because of him because he's been very supportive. And he makes a living mm-hmm. and I've done, I've done pretty well. And I've had some really good years. And then some years where my expenses are higher than my income. And I read um, the author's guild of which I'm a member is very worried about AI and in the um, lawsuit that they're uh, filing, I think against the big publishers to keep them from scraping material from books and not paying and not crediting and um, uh, the, wow. the average writer makes $23,000 a year, the average full-time writer. So you can't support a family on that or yourself really very easily, right? Hmm. So it's not a, it's not a- You're talking about the Writers Guild strike in Hollywood? Is that no, what you're I'm talking about the Authors Guild. The Authors, Authors Guild, Guild, okay. It's an organization for people who have published books. I think you can join now. It's much looser. It used to be that you had to publish a book. I Now I think they take other forms of publishing. You pay yearly dues and mm-hmm. they fight for copyright protection and stuff like that. Oh, but they're very, they're very worried about AI. In the course yes. of talking about that, they said that their survey showed that the average income for full-time writers is $23,000. Writers are not paid well. So. I'm glad you put that in there in this episode because, uh, yes, for those of you listening, you're not going to become a millionaire doing things the way the good, the right way. <laughs> the, the clickbait gets the money, but it's, it's to do something with integrity takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and, and a lot of, well, like what you're saying, risk, you're risking having expenses be higher than your income. Yeah, so that takes true. a lot of courage. But, but, you know, there's not a steady stream when, as a writer, there's not a steady stream of income and you, you know, you have to, uh, uh, okay. it helps that, that, that my husband has a steady stream of income. I mm-hmm. can tell you that, but, but I've, you know, I've had, I've had some good years and, and I'm not in the, at this time, I'm trying to get my Catherine Graham biography, um, uh, made into a limited series. And uh, it's been optioned a couple of times and HBO had it and greenlighted and paid me. Joan Didion, the famous nonfiction writer, wrote a screenplay for it. That was, but times have changed. It's really, really hard now. And the producer who I've been working with said it's impossible now, as long as the writers are on strike. And there doesn't seem to be the writers and the actors now are on strike and things Mm -hmm. are dead now. So you have to wait until it ends but when's it going to end because right. um ai which i try to ignore but i read last night that the uh there's a move to 
bring AI into the nation's newsrooms. So if you say you're writing a story about the high vacancy rate in office buildings in Chicago, that's just off the top of my head, AI will be able to set it up for you. And then you just fill in the details. But the problem with AI, I guess, is it's not accurate. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very depressing time. And I figure my career is nearing its end and I'm not, I don't really feel that, but I'm not going to worry about AI. I'm going to continue doing the work the way I do it and not take any shortcuts. And that's a shortcut. And it's people are going to get in trouble with that, I think. Wow. So, and the big loser is the reader. Yes. Papers already have lost so many readers that anyway. So, you, Phil, I, Phil, uh, Carol, <laughs> I just called you Phyllis. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Carol. Do you uh, do you have any Republicans in your social circle? No, none. Zero. Have you ever had Republicans in your social circle? Uh, no. And and yet you wrote a definitive biography of one of the most fire branded Republicans in 20th century. She may be the most important person in politics in the late 20th century, and well, in terms of a woman. You know, part of it is. You know, I wanted to get a book. I wanted to write a book. She wouldn't have been my first choice as a subject, but I had written this really interesting profile of her, yeah. which was negative. It was quite yeah. negative, but I'd written that about her. And so it was a logical next step. Yeah. And uh, that's how, you know, that's how writing goes. I I made the decision to write about the Washington Post owner, Catherine Graham, uh, after I interviewed her about Alice Roosevelt Longworth because she knew her. So it's uh, serendipity uh, yeah. how you pick your subjects. But, I, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood in Chicago where it was entirely Democratic. It was 99.9% .9 Jewish. Uh -huh. And I remember the 1960 election of Nixon versus Kennedy. And I, my parents hated Nixon and loved uh John Kennedy and I can remember we had elections in the classroom and nobody wanted Nixon and yeah and I my professional friends uh in the writing world in newspapers and magazines I was not a Republican among them um Illinois is a very 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 blue state my children are all left of center and uh in why, why I, are writers monolithically democrat like that well, they, I, I mean, I suppose they're, I happen to have a podcast that I like, and I'll admit it to you, but I'd probably be criticized. It's, um, it's called The Editors, and it's a national review. Okay. I'm trying, remember, I'm trying to remember the guy. He was editor of the magazine, and they're always like, they're three writers, and they're conservatives, and they're very, very smart. Mm -hmm. And they are, their views are different. And then they they do they talk about their personal lives in the podcast, what's going on in their home lives or whatever, or their kids' baseball games. And then at the end, <laughs> they recommend a, a a piece, a written piece that they particularly like. Mm -hmm. and I just find that. But other than that, my media consumption, I I've subscribed to the Washington Post. I used to get the Washington Post in the mail with grocery ads. Uh, I I read the Washington Post. I read the New York Times. 
I still read both Chicago papers, even the even though they're not what they used to be. And I do you get them delivered? Do you get them delivered? Until about a month ago, I got four papers delivered to my doorstep at great expense. I canceled (laughs) the paper version of the Tribune and the Wall Street Journal, but I get both of them digitally. I never read paper papers anyway. I got them from my husband. And I get the Sun-Times delivered and the New York Times delivered. And most of the time, nobody even looks at them. But I read them every day online. And I have come to be a big admirer of the Wall Street Journal. I think their news coverage is really good. Their op-ed page is far to the right for me. Um, But on on Saturday, they don't publish on Sunday. On Saturday, they have a section called Review, which is book reviews. And I think it's the best far and away book review. If you're interested in books, that's the one to read. It's far and away the best thing out there. So I think if I had to keep only one paper, I'd get I'd keep the Wall Street Journal because it's my favorite newspaper news coverage wise. Okay. And you mentioned uh, a little bit about religion. Um, You're mainly because you're kind of you're it's interesting to see how you would perceive her ardent Catholicism. Um, Mm -hmm. Did did you have a religious background growing up at all, particularly? Um, Reformed Jewish. But, you know, I I would grew up in a family, as I said before, where my brothers were bar mitzvah, had no interest whatsoever in learning Hebrew or learning anything about religion. I wanted to, but girls were not. My father would have never done that. He didn't believe in it. And Mm -hmm. so um, I became I identify very closely as a Jew um, I'm married to a Jewish man, but I'm not religious at all. In fact, sometimes as I get older, I said to my husband not long ago, I wish I believed in something because it would make it, you know, as, as medical issues and things come up, you kind of feel like, hey, yes. I wish it was something. But I, I'm, you know, I'm a, a, people should believe in whatever they believe, but I don't have any, we, we long, our, our uh, children were bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah, but we don't belong to a synagogue anymore. And I wouldn't, I can't imagine going to a service. I just don't. So I don't have religion, Hmm. but, but I, but I found, I find other people who do, I find, um, uh, I, I found that to be a really interesting aspect of, um, of Phyllis Schlafly. And I can remember she once asked me something about my, whether I'm practicing Jew and I, I don't remember what I said to her. I, I hope I said no, because that would have been the truth. But So that's me. Gotcha. Anyway, I think I'm going to go back to writing. I've got, <laughs> this has been fun. I've enjoyed yeah. it. Thank yeah. you for protecting me. I, I, I'm so, uh, Carol Felsenthal, Felsenthal, author of The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, published by Doubleday, 1981. I'm so grateful that you accepted my invitation to come on, and I have learned so much from you, and I was insp- I've was i been inspired by you, your integrity, and um, I hope that people read the book. Yeah, and I hope they, they go and read my other books, too, especially the Catherine Graham one. It's I, extremely relevant. I and have to admit. 
and Bill Clinton. So I have to admit, I'm going to go and order those and read them because I'm so impressed with this. Yeah, the Clinton book, the, the three that I really like are the Al's Roosevelt Long War, my book on Clinton, and my book on uh, Catherine Graham. Those are the three. So if you want some reading, they're very lively. I think you'll like them. I'm sure that my wife will thank you facetiously for now increasing the volume of books in our small home. So thank you from her. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you and hope to talk again. I appreciate that.